Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. I had breakfast with my son Matthew this past Saturday, yesterday. He lives in San Diego. He's the, I always have to say he's the executive chef at um, a really nice restaurant in San Diego. We try and get together at least once a month, and I tell, I tell him because I need to see his beautiful face and hear his voice, and we just catch up and we have a good time. But the interesting thing is that we go to the same place every, every time, and it's right down the street from his house. It's a great place. And we have the, the menu memorized, and every time we go, we sit in silence the first three or four minutes pouring over the menu and just pouring over it, looking as though there's some treasure that we haven't found before. Everything is so good. I don't know if you do that at your favorite restaurant, but you just, you know, you know what you're going to get, but you just pour over that menu because it's so, there are so many delicious things in it. The big challenge for preaching this particular text this, uh, this Sunday is its density. It's like that menu. It has so many things to choose from within it. Jesus comes to us, though fears have locked the door. Jesus keeps his promises, bringing peace and joy. Jesus discloses his wounds. He sent us as he is sent. He breathes on us the Holy Spirit. He declares our power to forgive and not to forgive. This is a very crowded scripture. Listen to the word of the Lord. From John 20, 19-31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Let me just stop here for just a moment. I want to point something out, and maybe it'll give you a little bit of insight into the uh, bad rap that Thomas has gotten. Notice that at the very beginning, Jesus appears to the disciples and speaks to them, but it's only when they see the wounds in his hands and his feet that they, re- they say, oh, it's you. So Thomas is really uh, asking for nothing less. He doesn't seem to have been there with them when this happened. Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. 
And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. So where to start when the room is so crowded with all of those themes? For me, the place to start is really with the place that jars a little bit, that seems out of place, and that would be to start with fear. I'm struck by the oddness of it in this particular place, because on that joyous day, this day of new life, this day when Mary Magdalene has seen the Lord and come and running, and they've gone and they've seen the tomb empty, they're huddled in a bolted room. They're afraid of the Jews, which means they were afraid of the authorities, for they themselves, of course, were Jews. And I wonder, had they simply dismissed what Mary Magdalene said? Have they ignored the testimony and the faith of the beloved disciple who, who recognized the empty tomb as that of a tomb of a risen Savior? Have all these things just flown out of their mind? And as 21st century Christians, we sometimes are quick to say, how could, how could they be so blind? But I wonder if their situation isn't just a little bit more analogous with ours. I mean, we've all heard the Easter story. We just celebrated it. We went through Lent trying to remember and remind ourselves of the great gravity and the sacrifice and the wonderful victory of Jesus. But did, did it va banish all of your fears? Are you sitting here today with all the anxieties and everything of your life banished and gone because you've heard this good news? Maybe not. Even as we are all seeing our hallelujahs and greeting each other with Christ is risen, we might still retain and hold on to those fears and those anxieties in a way that makes the full implication of the hallelujahs a little less Sure, a little less certain. But still, the living Christ comes to us, even though our fears may still be present. And the living Christ comes to us unhindered by our fears and unblocked by our defenses. If a shut tomb cannot hold Jesus, then a shut church cannot keep him out either, and neither can a hardened or fearful heart. We stand the mercy of Christ. None of these things hold a candle to it. So remember that when we talk about the resurrection, that Jesus could overcome everything. Jesus can even overcome our restless hearts and our inability to believe. But notice that Jesus doesn't scold really or criticize either the disciples when they couldn't see, nor does he really scold or criticize Thomas. But he simply says, peace. And here's something that, we, that is a little bit startling also. When Jesus tells us the peace that he has to give us, we always think about a place with no conflict, a place where, our, where, where everything is calm, everything is in harmony. 
But I think that even a cursory glance through any of the Gospels demonstrates clearly that the peace that of Jesus' ministry announces is nothing like the peace that either the religious leaders or the political authorities desired. It was neither a peace that brought simply silence. The Father didn't send the Son into the world merely to confirm the status quo. Instead, Jesus' peace is the sort that brings back into the fold the marginalized and those who are thrown out, those who are outcast, those that we don't find very easy to love. Jesus' peace brings those into the fold. And Jesus' peace turns upside down the societal conventions of the day. First and the first shall be last, the blessed and cursed, the rich and the poor, all of those, it's all up in the air. Jesus' peace invites the lion to lay down with the lamb and the neighbor and friend to be, become sinnermost in our attention. Jesus' peace invites the Jew to speak and live side by side with the Samaritan and the prostitute to dine with the Pharisee. You see, Jesus' peace isn't passive. Jesus' peace is active. It comes with action. Such actions show to those who have eyes to see that there's a new way of being in the world. So when Jesus says, peace be with you, it's almost a sense of that same commissioning that Jesus will send them out at the very end with. It's a vision inspired by the inbreaking. I love that word, the inbreaking. Breaking into our everyday, breaking into our ordinary, breaking into the, the future that we have so solidly confirmed with our plans, that, that God breaks into all of that with the kingdom of God, with a new way of being that's present in Jesus' very existence. Because Jesus lives, that old song says, because Jesus lives. Now the showing of his wounds at that time are an extension of that gift of peace. The wounds bear witness. They bear witness that the worst the world can do have you ever said to yourself, if that's the worst you can do, I've lived through a lot worse. Those wounds bear witness to that, and they disclose the truth that the worst is overcome. That the worst is overcome. And, and you know what's interesting is that I recognize this when I have uh, worked with people from AA or from Al-Anon or from uh, organizations that this is where they find their power. It's the power of the story. It's the power of people sharing their stories and bearing their scars for others to see. It's their story that says, I have been to the bottom. And at the bottom, I found God there. And I was dead, and now I'm alive. And it's that power of that story that brings that promise and hope of resurrection to all those other people who seem to be defeated by their addiction. And so Jesus brings his wounds and says, the worst the world can do is to kill you. They've done. And I am alive. 
for the risen Christ to show the disciples his wounds. He is to, for him to ask, what remains for you to be afraid of? What could you possibly be afraid of? What will prevail but peace? After their, after their rejoicing, the text takes a decisive turn. Because all of a sudden, it goes from Christ's new life, and it focuses on ours. It begins with the declaration that the disciples are to be sent. And we can hardly be much surprised by this, because since all, all four Gospels, the resurrection is always accompanied by a commission. In fact, this connection has already occurred with Mary Magdalene. The first thing Mary, that Jesus says to Mary Magdalene is go and tell my brothers. Mary, go and tell my brothers. But two factors make this particular commissioning different than all the others. The first is that it's a full parallel. It's fully exactly the same with God sending Jesus into the world. It's precisely as Jesus was sent, so we are sent. The same thing. Meaning what? What does that mean that we're sent in the same way that Jesus is sent? That we too become the word made flesh? That we are the body of Christ? That we too must lay down our lives for others in some particular way? You know, to be assigned by the risen Christ as messengers with a set of communications task is one thing. We might all be able to handle that. But to be shown his wounds and then be sent into the world as he was sent, it has the feel of a more encompassing and demanding relationship, doesn't it? Go as I went into the world. It's significant and it's weighty. And this leads to the second reason why this commission is different than the others. Because only in John are the disciples empowered immediately and so intimately by breath, by Jesus himself. You know, by ourselves, we really aren't capable of following Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes we put it on our shoulders that to follow Jesus, we have to do all the heavy work. The fact is, we can't do the heavy work by ourselves. We actually have to have Jesus to help us follow Jesus. We can't do it by ourselves because we want to fit in. We want to maintain our social status. We don't want to let go. We want to preserve our privilege and and good name, all of which are threatened by Jesus sending us out. Did you ever, uh, in your younger years maybe, And I say that because I think when we mature, we understand that maybe it's not quite what we thought. You know, Jesus, send me anywhere you want. I'm yours, but not to, and put your name of your own country at the end of that. Send me any place, but not. But here there can be a little doubt of what is being signified when Jesus breathes that breath into them. As God in the primordial garden breathes into the nostrils of an inanimate clay 
to make a living soul. We became a soul that breathed and had life because of God's breath. So Jesus, having taken up his life again from a tomb in a garden, and having been perceived by Mary to be the gardener, now bends to breathe life into the disciples, to breathe the breath of life into these injured, damaged, and hurting disciples as God has breathed life into each of us and Jesus has breathed the Holy Spirit. They are created. He has made them living souls. They are the first children of God in this brand new world. This is the gift to all who receive him. How else could we ever be sent if we did not receive But, of course, I don't think you can do justice to this text without talking a little bit about Thomas and taking Thomas seriously, actually. We don't preach above Thomas, and we don't preach below Thomas, but we preach alongside Thomas. He's our big brother, and how how is that? He's our big brother and a fair theologian theologian because he has something to teach us and because there's something about Thomas that is within all of us. Am I talking about doubt? Not really. In fact, billions and billions of people from that moment on learned from Thomas. All of us who are post-Easter people have been required to believe in Christ without seeing Jesus. All of us. And so in that moment, Jesus teaches all of us who must live and walk in this earth without the living on earth and walking around Jesus to believe in him without seeing him. The risen Christ doesn't dismiss Thomas. He grants them. He says, come and touch, feel. And I think that that's reason enough to regard Thomas with some respect and perhaps admiration. Why? To begin with, he doesn't give himself over to someone else's religious enthusiasm. He doesn't say, well, because of you, I I believe. He wants to know for himself. As Reformed people of faith, we know that we need to not base our faith on what we hear from other people, that we must study scripture ourselves that we must think carefully, that we must have heart and mind, and all together in this grand enterprise. And unlike the doubting Thomas of tradition, the consistent portrayal of Thomas in this text and in the whole gospel is of a solid realist and a very brave one at that. When Lazarus dies, And Jesus heads for Judea to to raise him. This is a mission that sends Jesus on his perilous journey to Jerusalem to his death. And they already know there's great danger in him going in that direction. Thomas, it's Thomas that declares in 11.6, let us also go that we will die with him. So Thomas isn't afraid. Thomas isn't a non-believer. When Jesus, on the verge of his crucifixion, tells his disciples that they know where he is going, it's Thomas, the realist, that says, well, actually, we don't know where you're going. If you could explain it a little better. 
He is by no means a person of unsteady conviction or a predisposition to doubt, but someone who is willing to face and to name the evident difficult times. He's not a person that says, we won't think about it, we'll just do it. He says, let's think about it and do it. And this narrative, in other words, is not about resurrection faith in some general sense. It's about resurrection being real or not. It's, it's, does it matter or not? It's depending on its relationship to the violence that's borne by Jesus. I need to touch those wounds. Thomas will not tolerate a vision of Christ. Thomas will not tolerate the crucifixion being a metaphor. The world made flesh must remain, however differently, solidly real, bearing real witness to mortal brutalities. That's where Thomas is coming from. And Jesus comes to Thomas and he urges him to believe. And the whole gospel, we're told at this point, was written for this very reason. All of the scripture is written for this very reason, friends. From the beginning in Genesis, the entire scripture, all the way through the revelation, but then continuing on in the resurrected body of Christ in us today is all written for, for one reason, and that is so that we might believe so that we might believe and come into the fullness of what it means to be a human created by God and claimed by God in salvation. The peace of Christ is the peace that Christ knows that can come only when all of us are together, when all of us have been touched and spoken and, and welcomed and held with tenderness. It's the peace that comes from living for another. And is it a peace that we're willing to claim as the living body of Christ? God has made it clear that death is not the end. Very clear. God's power is able to overcome any barrier. And the resurrection of Jesus is the birth of eternal hope. That's why Christmas follows Easter and Easter follows Christmas. It's a never-ending cycle. Seeing is not the ultimate believing. The ultimate believing for us, who are post-Easter people, is trust. So today we can say, with bold and confident and eternal hope, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. So that we might believe. Amen.